If you're here with us today, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be finishing up a series that we began some time ago about putting off and putting on. We're talking about putting off ungodly habits and replacing them with something better, habits, holy habits that would honor the Lord. And so if you have your notes this morning, notice that the sermon title is Replacing Evil Vices with Eternal Virtues. And we're in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, and this is a part two of a, uh, of a two-part sermon. So we're going to be looking at verses 31 and 32. We read this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder of that it is in Christ alone in which we stand. It's because of his perfect life and his death and his resurrection that we have the power through Christ, to put off these evil behaviors and to replace them with holy habits. Would you give us the strength today to listen carefully as we anticipate your spirit working with the sword of the spirit, the word of God, to change hearts and to change lives and to help us learn to forgive others, even as we've been forgiven in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about that man, Louis Zamperini, the recent movie Unbroken, how he was a man who was a, an American hero, an Olympic athlete who was captured in World War II and placed in a Japanese prison camp and how he later came to Christ and was able to forgive those who tortured him. This morning, I want to tell you of the story of a missionary by the name of Gladys Staines. Brian Chappell records this story for us. On January the 23rd, 1999, Gladys' husband, Graham, and her two sons, Timothy and Philip, ages 8 and 10, were asleep in a vehicle in a remote village in eastern India. The Staines had given their lives there as missionaries to lepers for 34 years. They were about to give much more. While the man and his sons were sleeping, a group of militant Hindus doused the car with gasoline and set it on fire. The militants then prevented the stains from getting out and kept rescuers at bay. The horrific incident brought world attention, but even more did Gladys' response to the terrible murder of her husband and her two young boys. She wrote, when I learned that my family was dead, I told my daughter, we'll forgive them, won't we? And she said, yes, mommy, we will. She explained forgiveness brings healing. It allows the other person a chance to start life afresh. If I have something against you and I forgive you, the bitterness leaves me. Forgiveness liberates both the forgiver and the forgiven. How was I able to forgive? The truth is that I myself am a sinner. I needed Jesus Christ to forgive me because I have Jesus in my life. It is possible for me to forgive others. Her words so reflect the apostles' words here in Ephesians, forgive as God in Christ forgave you. And the results of her forgiveness match the Spirit's intent. Gladys honestly reports that before the murders, her family's ministry had been quite localized and somewhat unnoticed. But her witness of Christ's love has turned world attention and reform to the persecution of other Christians in India, the militant of certain Hindu groups, and the plight of lepers to whom the Staines family had ministered. It was forgiveness, not hate or revenge or malice, that was the silver lining in this dark cloud in her life. She, with God's help, no doubt, learned the freedom 
of forgiving others, even as she had been forgiven in Christ. This same thing can happen for you this morning. You may not have ever been in the horrific tragedy of a martyrdom of a close family member. But every one of us in this room have struggled with some awful thing that's happened to you in the past. You may have been abused. You may have had something stolen from you. You may have been slandered. Somebody might have sinned against you with a high hand and they didn't care. Somebody might have called you a name. Somebody might have treated you with some injustice. Or maybe what you're struggling with this morning is more of a missed opportunity. The bitter regret of what it could have been. Well, this morning, I want you to know that you can be free. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, together with all malice, be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Only God could do a work like this in the life of Louis Zamperini, in the life of Gladys Staines, and only God could do a work of grace like this in your life. This morning, may we listen carefully as we're being instructed again in the last part of Ephesians of how to put off these evil sins and to replace them with his sanctifying grace. Notice a few weeks ago, we looked at the first of five sins that we were exhorted to put off. It was falsehood in verse 25, the sin of lying. And we're told to put that off and instead to replace it with speaking the truth in love. And then secondly, we were commanded in verses 26 and 27 to be angry, but not to sin. That it's okay to have some level of righteous indignation, but not to let that push us over into sin and into a a personal offense, but rather we're to deal with that before the sun goes down. Third, we were taught not to steal, but rather we would work hard with honest labor with our own hands so that we could actually share with others who have need. Fourth, we were taught in verses 29 and verse 30 to put off any type of corrupting talk. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only that which is helpful for building others up. And then we began this sermon, a two-parter, a couple of weeks ago, which tells us these six evil vices are to be put away from us, and they're to be replaced with kindness and tenderness and with forgiveness. Each one of these major five sins that we're called to put off and put on, because if we're in Christ, we're a new creature. Look again at verse 23. We've been renewed in the spirit of our minds. And so we're to put on that new self. And so each one of these five things had a negative command. Don't do this anymore. Followed by a positive command. Instead, do this. And then there's a rationale given of here's the reason why we should do what it is that God has commanded us to do. And so we'll follow that same outline one last time this morning. Notice last time we were together in this text, we looked at the negative command of putting off all evil vices. And last time we covered five of them. Let me review them with you. They're already filled in in your blanks there. We were called by God to put off bitterness. We talked about how this word bitterness refers to a sharpness. In the original language, it has the idea of it could even refer to a bitter taste, like eating an unripe fruit, like an unripe lime. Or it could deal with the sense of smell, a pungent smell even of frying onions. Or it could deal with the the piercing sound of having a whistle blown in your ear. So it's some kind of bitterness that sets you on edge. This bitterness is is a seething anger. It's, it's when you're treated unfairly and injustice has been done, you begin to move in your heart with great resentment against the fact. We saw how this word was used in the book of Acts to describe the gall of bitterness, that that gall would be like saying the heart of hearts, the, the bitterness of bitterness is what we struggle with sometimes. In Hebrews, we've studied the root of bitterness and how that root gets down deep in the soil and you've got to weed it out of your heart. You've got to take that root and move it side to side and up and back and gently yet firmly at the same time pull until you get the whole root out. These illustrations of the gall of bitterness and the root of bitterness really imply that resentment has been going on for some time. It's been going on for a long time and it's time to now deal with it by the grace of God. One pastor tells a story of how a handsome elderly man stepped into his study one day and asked this pastor if he would perform the wedding ceremony. 
The pastor says this, I suggested that he bring the bride in so that we might chat together and get better acquainted since I hesitate to marry strangers. Before she comes in, the man said, let me explain this wedding to you. Both of us have been married before and to each other. Over 30 years ago, we got into an argument. I got mad and we separated. Then we did a stupid thing and got a divorce. I guess we were both too proud to apologize. Well, all these years, we've lived alone, and now we see how foolish we've been. Our bitterness has robbed us of the joys of life, and now we want to remarry and see if the Lord won't give us a few years of happiness before we die. Well, hopefully it doesn't take you 30 years to realize that bitterness is not the way. Bitterness is never God's way. Thank God this couple finally saw the light and after 30 years of hardness of heart, repented of their sins and came back together. God forbid that that kind of bitterness would ever grow in your own heart. The second vice we were called to put off is to put off wrath. This word wrath is the word thumos, And in classical times, it had the idea of the spirit or the passion of a person. When applied to a human, this word has to do more with the wild rage or the passion of the moment. You and I are called to put off all forms of sinful wrath. I think in today's culture, a lot of times we think of it as having a temper. Well, I just have a bad temper. Well, I was just raised in a home where my dad's temper seemed to always flare. So that's just the way I am. Well, no, the Bible calls it sin. And by the grace of God, you can deal with your wrathful emotion. With a toddler, sometimes it's called a temper tantrum, where our little ones sometimes kick and scream and bite and act in ways completely out of control, which, by, by the way, there's a diagnosis for that called the impulsive uh, disorder in the DSM-5. Uh, we used to call it a temp- temper tantrum when I was growing up. The Bible calls it sin. No matter how old you are, by God's grace, we can teach and train little ones to look to Christ. Certainly, there's a level of patience and grace as we learn. We can only be changed, though, by the grace of God through Christ. By the grace of God, we are called to something higher. We are called to put that kind of behavior off, not to accept it, but rather to replace it with something better. The third word there in Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger. We're called to put off anger. So wrath and anger are synonyms. Wrath is the idea of that passion or rage and tends to pour out in the moment of emotion. Think of wrath as an emotion that boils up and then bursts forth when triggered. The word for anger, on the other hand, is more of a state of anger. It means a settled and abiding anger. If wrath is a forest fire that consumes everything in its path and burns it down to the ground, then anger is more of that smoldering embers that remain, the glowing coals that stay hot for a long time. You may be here and think that you're keeping your anger under control because you're not letting it go outward and displaying that violent temper. But this kind of anger that stays for a long time, like those burning coals, could be just as deadly, if not worse. For it will certainly lead to that root of bitterness that we just discussed. So we're called here to deal with it, to confess it to the Lord, not to let the sun go down on your anger. A fourth evil vice to put off is put off clamor. Clamor has the idea of crying or screaming or shouting. Clamor is the shout or outcry of strife, and it reflects the public outburst that reveals a total loss of control. Clamor could be talking over one another in bombastic ways to purposefully enrage your foe in some kind of shouting match. Clamor is a heated argument where your pride and arrogance are on display and your words begin to cling and to clang as you begin to pound and thrust your words in the face of your enemy in order to tear them down instead of to build them up. We're called here to remove all clamor out of our life. By the grace of God, we can learn to speak in intelligible and in gracious 
ways. We can speak words of gentleness, which would turn away wrath. A fifth evil device that we were called to put off is to put off slander. This word for slander refers to profane or abusive speech. The word is actually blasphemia, which is where we get the English word blaspheme from. In fact, the old King James translates this as evil speaking. And so calling out sin is not, is not slander. Slander would be you're either telling an untruth about someone else or you're purposefully trying to defame their character to somehow ruin their reputation or their life. That's different than calling somebody out in sin. That's different than calling people to repent of their sin. Calling a person to repent of their sin is not slander. That's being a true friend. Calling people to repent of their sin is not slander. It's church discipline to call them out, to expose the sin so that the means of God's grace can truly work to change a heart, to restore a person caught in the throes of death so that they can repent of their sin and be restored in a right relationship with God and with their church. It's speaking the truth in love for the purpose of actually helping them and building them up, not tearing them down, and aim to restore the repentant sinner. Well, our sixth evil vice, and this is a new one for us this morning, this is where we pick up, is to put off malice. Notice that there's bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, and then we read, be put away from you along with all malice. So malice could be translated as badness, vice, or evil. It is the opposite of moral excellence or virtue. It's found in the New Testament no less than 11 times. It's often translated as wickedness, and it usually has the idea of ruining the other person. The idea behind the word malice is that you are so upset at the other person that you're actually hoping that something bad happens to them. It's kind of like these other five things now build up to this state of malice where not only are you angry, you're so angry, you're thinking, I hope something evil happens to you. I hope you go step on a rake. I hope you get struck by a lightning. I hope you get in a car wreck. Now, some of that sounds humorous. We think, surely nobody thinks that. It's not beyond the human heart to think such awful and wicked thoughts. And this is exactly what malice is, is that you're wishing harm on another person. You're very upset and you desire for their demise. Let me show you a couple places in the New Testament where this word is used. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's in the context here of Paul addressing so-called Christians who are allowing sexual immorality to continue in their midst. And Paul warns them of this and accuses them even of malice. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may... Be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So in other words, Paul said, hey man, you guys are really allowing evil to continue in a sense wishing evil upon one another. And when you act in that way, it's that leaven that continues and stays and begins to influence the rest of the leaven. And unless you renounce and repent of all forms of evil, including the malice that was in the hearts of some of the first Corinthians believers, then they will never experience the grace of God to the extent that God desired them to. Harold Honer, a well-known commentator in the book of Ephesians, writes this, the word malice can denote a single act of iniquity like an envious desire, but generally it denotes that which evil people do to one another. It is an all-inclusive word for badness or wickedness. It casts a funeral cloth on any action with which it is connected. Hence, it is best to translate it ill will, malice, or maliciousness. So the fact that these Corinthians were continuing to live even in ongoing sexual sin really represented a heart of malice or wishing harm to somebody else. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Titus 3, verse 3, we read another place where the word malice is used. For we ourselves were once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Surely you and I are not going to succumb to that. We're passing our days in malice. In other words, the idea is that they were so disobedient, so engraved in their sin, they were slaves to wickedness, that they did nothing more than just spend their day filled with malice and hatred, hating others and being hated by others. That's how they spent their day. Talk about a root of bitterness that has not been properly dealt with. That's why Harold Honer continues to write about this word malice. This word colors all the other words mentioned earlier in the verse. Certain words like anger and wrath need not to have an evil connotation, but with the last noun united with them, they denote a malicious anger and wrath. In other words, we talked in our previous sermons how the word anger can be used is righteous indignation. God is angry and he actually commands us to be angry. God is filled with wrath. And there may be a place where we sense that him feeling that is the fact that he's justified in his wrath against sin. But when these words here are coupled with the word malice, it makes it abundantly clear that he's talking about this sinful edge of wrath and the sinful edge of malice. And so here is this maliciousness. So Paul urgently exhorts believers to put away all of these qualities, which are defined by malice. So we're to put off all forms of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. And all of these Evil vices are commanded of us to put off. All six of these can be tied to the tongue. They can be anchored to your heart. And without the grace of God, you cannot get rid of them. But by the grace of God in Christ, you are a new creation. By the grace of God in Christ, you can speak words of grace. In Christ, you can unchain your evil heart and unleash freedom like you've never known. In Christ, you can put off the list of sins and replace it with a list of virtues that would honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is precisely what we're being challenged to do. Don't be like this, be like this. And so that transitions us into our second major heading. There's that positive command given of putting on eternal virtues. And the first one is kindness, put on kindness. So remember, this is again in the imperative. In other words, it's a command. It's not like, hey, be kind if you feel like it, or only be kind when others are kind to you, or be kind if you have it, you know, if you're kind of having a good day. I mean, the idea is that we're called to be kind all the time. And this word kind is used seven times in the New Testament. The word connotes the idea of being good or being honest, something that's worthy It also has the idea of being useful or serviceable. The word is used, I told you, seven times in the New Testament. I want to show you how it's used to describe God's character, how it's used to describe Christ, and then how it's to be used of you. Okay, It's used of God in Romans 2.4. You can jot that reference down if you want. Romans 2.4, this word is used of God. This is a familiar passage. Or do you not presume on the riches of his kindness And forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So in other words, in that context of God's righteous judgment of sinners in Romans chapter 2, he first tells us in verse 4, don't presume upon the riches of God's kindness. I mean, we all know God is kind, but if you're evil and you're unrepentant, you will be judged. And then the second part of the verse, he says, but it's the kindness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance. It's not the judgment of God necessarily that attracts us. Certainly we want to avoid eternal judgment and death, and it is right and appropriate to teach that even as the Bible does. But certainly it would be wrong to say that that's our main motivation is simply to escape hell when there's a much greater motivation, and that motivation is the kindness of God, that in God's kindness... This attractive quality and attribute of the creator of the universe is the exact thing that draws us to repentance. We run to God, not only so that he can save us from his wrath, but so that we can experience his kindness. It leads us to repentance. This is a word that describes an attribute of God. Not only this, but the word is used of Christ. Turn with me to Matthew 11. Verse 30, this is a very familiar passage, and it's interesting. You may not have seen that it's the word kindness that's actually in the original language. I'm talking about the part where Christ says, 
Don't be heavy, weary and heavy laden, right? Come unto me and I will give you rest. And then look at verse 30. Christ says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word easy there is the word for kindness. In other words, Christ is saying, hey, I'm going to be really kind to you. The reason it's going to be easy for you is because I've already done it for you. I've already fulfilled God's law perfectly. You don't have to be weary and heavy laden trying to keep all of God's law, at least in the sense of to be justified by it. For the law doesn't justify, but Christ does. And because Christ justifies us by his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice and his resurrection, he now says to you that you are to be yoked with him and he will make it easy for you. That's kindness. You can't get there on your own. We're commanded to be perfect, but we can't be perfect. Yet we can be yoked together with Christ. And his yoke is easy because he's already accomplished it in full. Christ is kind to us and allowing his yoke of righteousness to be shared with us so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have his imputed righteousness accounted to us. The word kindness is also used of man, of you and I, the gospel of Luke. Chapter 6, verse 35, in that context where Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In other words, if Jesus is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, then we're called to be like him. So we're to be actually kind to our enemies. We're to love our enemies. That's kindness. Somebody hits you in the mouth. And the Lord Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Somebody, you know, takes your cloak and you, you, you offer him another. Somebody asks you to go one mile, you go two miles. The, the idea is that you keep giving and giving. You show kindness to others because this is what Christ did with us. We're to be kind, not only in our actions, but with our words. So many times my precious wife has reminded me, honey, it's just not, it's not what you're saying it's how you're saying it, right? I might get grumpy or I may be tired or I may be cutting with my words. That's just not being kind. God, give us the grace to be kind. Let me ask you, husbands, how do you speak to your wife when she does something that you think is inappropriate or that she shouldn't do? Do you cut her with your words or do you speak to her with beautiful words to that precious flower that God has given you? Moms, let me ask you, how do you do with your words to your kids when your kids don't get up the first time you ask them to get up in the morning or they don't get dressed right away or they don't eat the food that you put out for them or they don't work on their homework in a, a reasonable manner? Are your words kind? Would your children, if I were to ask them, say, mommy is the kindest to me when I disobey? It's a challenge for us, right? There's no excuse just because our kids are disobeying does not give us a right to be unkind. I'm not saying let your kids walk all over you and rule the house. I am saying to be kind even as you address sin in the life of another. For that is the very character of God that attracts us to himself. Secondly, we're called to put on tenderness. So not only are we called to be kind, but we're called to put on tenderness. This word is used 11 times in the New Testament. It is a rare and compound word that originally was used to actually refer to your organs, like your heart and your liver and your lungs and your kidneys. That's why many think that later it had the metaphorical reference to the seat of feelings, the place of your emotions. We talked a few weeks ago about how God is not so passive that he doesn't feel, that God experiences emotion in right and inappropriate ways. And we talked about that fact that God even can be tenderhearted. In fact, I'm going to show you three places where the word tenderhearted is used in the same way of God, of Christ, and of us as men and women. It's used of God in Luke chapter 1, verses 76 to 78. This is the context of the prophet Zechariah giving praise to God for giving him a baby boy, John the Baptist, who would be the prophet who would come prior to Christ. And he says this in Luke 176, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. 
Well, there's the word that we're to be tenderhearted. Why? Because God was tenderhearted. He had tender mercy. Not only is it used of God, but it's also used of Christ. Just listen to Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So here's the idea of not only was God filled with this tender heart, this word compassion is the same word of tender heartedness. That's what Christ felt in his heart when he saw his people who were wandering around, who had been exploited, who had been deceived, who were falling into legalism. He, he, his heart ached for them. And Jesus felt this kind of tender heart to come to them. Notice it wasn't the people so many times that he rebuked. It was the Pharisees and the teachers of the people that he rebuked. But to the people, he simply said, go and send no more. He had great compassion. I'm not saying we're not rebuked by Christ. We are. We could look at the book of Revelation and see how each of the seven churches had a specific rebuke there from our Lord. He rebuked Peter when he said, get behind me, Satan. But I am saying that oftentimes what we see is Christ rebuking those who are completely uh, without him. But those who are with him, he has a gentle way of teaching and instructing them because his heart is filled with compassion. It's used of man in Philippians 1.8, this word tenderheartedness. And it's actually translated in this verse as affection. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So there's a great affection that we're to have for one another. This is the affection that Paul had for the church of Philippi. He'd spent time there. They'd planted a church there. He's writing a letter to these people. So man, my heart longs to be with you. I have great affection to be with you. And I'm just wondering, how are you doing this morning, church, in the area of tenderheartedness? Do you have a tender heart towards one another? Do you have a tender heart towards that person in your small group that just irritates you to no end? Do you have a a tender heart towards that person in your family that just gets on your nerves? Do you have a tender heart towards that person at your work site that just drives you crazy? Do we have really this idea of, you know, I just feel compassion for that person because I'm not sure if they know Christ. Or I have compassion on this person because they know Christ and they still have problems. Just like you and just like me, we need to share a little compassion with one another to have a tender heart to say, you know, I can relate to what it's like to not have your best day and use words of grace in that moment to have a tender heart towards one another. Last, we're told to put on forgiveness and this word for forgiveness in this particular context is actually the word for grace. It's the word charis. It means giving somebody something they don't deserve. It's this idea of the grace of God. That's what forgiving is. It's God giving you what you don't deserve. The word here for charis or forgiveness is used of God in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So God forgives us by giving us all things, i.e. eternity, which you and I don't deserve. He can give that to us because it's part of his character. It's part of who he is. He's a God who gives. So this word is gracious, but this also the word for forgiveness. It's also used of Christ. In Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So the idea of Christ granted us the ability to believe and not only to believe, but to suffer. So God was gracious with us or forgave us. In a sense, it's through Christ who was given up for us and it's for his sake that we're called to believe. But it's also used of man in Ephesians 4.32, our text right here for this sermon. The idea that it is precisely this word of charis that we're called to point towards and act towards and relate to one another. We're to forgive one another. We're to show grace. We're to give to each other what the other person doesn't deserve. And so then we end this third heading of the sermon with the rationale, which each one of these has, again, the 
negative command, the positive command, and the rationale. What's the rationale of why it is that we should be kind, tenderhearted, and forgive one another? It's simply this, because God has forgiven you in Christ. And this is nowhere better seen than in Matthew 18. There's your next blank. God exemplifies forgiveness in the gospel. In other words, God's not asking you to do something he hasn't already done. He's not asking you to be kind or to forgive people if he hasn't done it himself. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 18. And here we see a beautiful story that Jesus gives of what it really means to forgive others, even as we've been forgiven in Christ. Notice Matthew 18 includes the parable of the lost sheep. And after the parable of the lost sheep, it includes the story about how uh, that if your brother sins against you, you're, you're, it's not a story, it's a truth. You're, you're to confront him. That's where we get our whole doctrine of church discipline, which aims towards restoration. And then we move right into the parable of the unforgiving servant. Notice here, Peter came up to Jesus in verse 21 and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? So Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. Well, if my brother keeps sinning against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? Many scholars say that the number in the rabbi's mind of the day was three times. So if you forgive somebody three times, then you're done. So Peter comes to Jesus and says, well, what about seven times? That's double what the rabbi said, plus one. What do you think, Jesus? We can forgive him seven times? Is that good? Jesus says what? Verse 22, he said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. The idea of 490. If you're reading from the ESV, it may say 70 times, uh, but, but the, there's the, the idea is here, there's a hyperbole of it is an enormous amount of times. It's not 70 times seven, which is 490, in the sense of you forgive 488, 489, 490, I'm done. That's not the heart of the passage. The heart of the passage is, no, you just keep forgiving. Like you forgive and forgive and forgive. And then Jesus says, let me tell you a parable about this unforgiving servant. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity... For him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, let's be clear here. There's a master or a king who has a servant who owes him a lot of money. How much money does he owe him? 10,000 talents. Scholars tell us that it would take 20 years of labor to make one talent. So to come up with 10,000 talents is an impossible figure. In today's currency, it's estimated that that would be $8 billion. Anybody got $8 billion on you this morning? I mean, the idea is this guy's in trouble, big time. I don't care if he wins the Powerball lottery. It's not going to help him out. I don't care if he makes great investments. He's probably never going to get his hands on $8 billion. So what does he do? He does the only thing he can. He throws himself on the mercy of the king and the king is moved with compassion and he forgave him the debt. Then we read this in verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and he seizing, seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. And so this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, you see what happens. This first servant who was forgiven an enormous sum of 10,000 talents goes out and he finds somebody who owes him some money. He owes him 100 denarii. One denarii is one day's wage. So if you're making 60 grand and you're working 300 days out of the year, then let's just estimate it to be 20 grand, a third of a year's salary. He owes him 20,000 bucks. Is that a lot of money? Well, it is for me. Somebody borrowed 20 grand. I'm going to have them sign something somewhere that they're paying it back. 
And if they don't, I'm going to come after them <laughs> with kindness. <laughs> but in truth, hey, buddy, you said you're going to pay this back. I mean, 20 grand, that's a lot of money. Is it payable? Absolutely. This guy could work hard, maybe save up over a couple of years, pay him back in time. It's a very manageable debt. It's a car payment. Certainly, this man could have paid him back. Just let him work. But the first slave was impatient and unforgiving. So the first slave had him thrown into prison. Now look at what happens, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. When his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do with every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So what happened? Basically, the king heard what happened brought that first servant back and said, in a sense, your debt hasn't really been forgiven. And the point of the parable is not to teach you can lose your salvation because you can't. The point of the parable is to teach rather, if you've really tasted salvation, you would act toward others in the same way God has acted toward you. And that if you don't, it could be that you don't know Christ. I mean, I hope that you see it clearly. When I first read this parable as a child, I thought for surely I'm the second servant. I'm like, yeah, I'm in a little bit of trouble, but I could pay it back. And that man was mean to him. And I was thinking, man, I'm like that second guy who I had pity on. I don't want to be like the first guy. The whole point is you and I are that first slave. You and I owe God a debt that you could never pay. God demands perfection. You could spend the rest of your life doing righteous deeds and they would never measure up to the 10,000 talent debt that you owe God. You cannot free yourself from the prison of sin. You cannot escape the wages of sin as death. You cannot wash the sin off. It's only washed off by the blood of Christ. And so you and I, Lord willing, have come to our heavenly father and said, the only thing that we could, we've thrown ourselves at his mercy and we beg God, please forgive me the debt. Oh God, I'm a sinner. I am ruined. I could never pay you back. I'm not even going to try to. I'm just going to throw myself at your feet and beg you for forgiveness. If you've done that this morning, then you have tasted of the kindness of God the tenderheartedness of God and the grace of God because he shows it to all who come to him in repentance and faith. Every man, every woman who comes to God with this repentant heart, God extends mercy and he will forgive the debt. The problem is life goes on and you and I find somebody who sinned against us. You and I find somebody who did something against us and we want to make it even with them. And we're tempted to have revenge on them because they sinned against us a $20,000 debt. And instead of forgiving them their injustice that they did against us, we should forgive that even as God forgave us in a sense of a larger injustice And yet sometimes we hold on to that hurt and that pain of what the other person did to us. And the whole reason is, is because we have forgotten what God has forgiven us of in Christ. If you're having trouble forgiving somebody this morning, just remember that you've been forgiven. If you're in Christ, you owed a $10,000 debt to God and he graciously and lovingly forgave you. And he's called you to forgive others. That's the words of Christ. So will my heavenly father do with you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the whole rationale of God exemplifies forgiveness in the gospel. 
so that we can truly put off these evil vices and replace them with these God-honoring virtues. God models for us what we should be doing. Not only this, but we see God expects forgiveness because of the gospel. It's just simply expected of us. In the parallel passage to Ephesians 4, which is Colossians 3, we read these words, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So the idea is it's just understood. If you're forgiven, you're going to forgive others. That's what we do. We live a life of forgiveness. We constantly forgive others 70 times 7. Does it matter how many times? Does it matter how gross the sin? We constantly forgive because we look to Christ. Last, God empowers forgiveness through the gospel. If you're sitting here and you're like, I, don't, I just can't. Dude, I cannot do that. Then I would agree with you. You can't. But God can. God will give you the power and the grace to forgive. The bank of heaven opens up to you this morning. And God abounds in loving kindness and in patience and in love. And he longs not only to show you his attributes, he longs for you to show his attributes to others. He longs for you to show this same example to others because you've been forgiven. I love the quote by Linsky that I put there at the bottom of your outline or maybe under the application questions. He writes this, the moment a man wrongs me, I must forgive him. Then my soul is free. If I hold the wrong against him, I sin against God and against him and jeopardize my forgiveness with God. Jeopardize my forgiveness with God? Well, the, the point is, if you've really been forgiven, you're going to forgive others. And if you're not forgiving others, it may be that you've never really tasted forgiveness. So we must do it right away. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Listen now to the end of Gladys Stain's story of forgiveness. The missionary woman who lost her husband and her two young sons after the accounts of Gladys's forgiving heart circulated. Another missionary reported that a man in India received a gospel tract. After reading it, he asked, is this the same Jesus that Gladys Stain's believes in? Yes, the missionary replied. Then the man said, I want to know that Jesus. Forgiveness is the essence of the gospel. So much so that when forgiveness is on display, the gospel is on display. When you demonstrate forgiveness against somebody who sinned against you in a horrible way, it allows other people to see Jesus Christ. Sometime after the murders, there was a report on how her daughter was doing. The same young girl who had resolved with her mommy to forgive. Gladys wrote that someone approached her daughter at school and said, I can't understand how you can forgive. Do you know what that, her daughter said? She said, Mommy, I can't understand how they can't understand why we have forgiven. In other words, forgiveness had been so etched on the mind of this little girl that she could not even perceive while other people would not forgive. And look at her with curiosity of how in the world can you forgive? Parents, your children are watching you. And if you speak evil words of malice around your house about certain people that you do not like, your kids will pick it up. But if you speak words of grace around your house in a way that we choose to forgive others, we choose to love others, we choose to be kind to others, we choose to be tenderhearted toward others, we're going to give them grace. Then your children will also, by the grace of God, pick up this behavioral pattern, this holy habit, this grace-filled way of living. And it's only through Christ that you can walk this way and forgive others, even as God has forgiven you. Look at these take-home points quickly with me. Which one of the evil vices do you need to God's grace on putting off today? I encourage every man 
in this congregation, if you have a family, that when you go home, you would maybe talk around the table this very day and ask your children, which evil vice do you think mommy and daddy struggle with the most? Which evil vice do you struggle with the most? How can we help one another grow in this area? How about number two? Which one of the eternal virtues, virtues do you need God's grace in putting on today? Maybe you could talk about that. Hey, which one of these do we need to work the most on? Would you pray for me that mommy would learn to be more kind when I deal with you about your homework? Would you pray for me that I would be more kind, sweetie, as I talk to you, even if I had a tough day at work? Number three, how can looking to God's grace in Christ help you put off and put on all these behaviors in Ephesians 4? In other words, you can't do it without Christ. We're not talking about behavioral modification. We're talking about life transformation. Has God done in you what he so graciously did in Louis Zamperini and in Gladys Staines? Let's replace evil vices with eternal virtues. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look again in your holy word and to see outlined for us such a beautiful unbelievable account of the gospel, which is the engine and the motive and the means and all that we live for so that we could truly apply this text. God forbid that we would ever fall into some kind of legalism or putting off and putting on as just a behavioral change to be a better person. But God, I pray that you would make us better because you make us over in Christ. You renew us from the inside out. And as you renew us from the inside out, God, give us grace to remove once and for all these evil habits and to replace them with holy habits. God, I pray for that individual who's really struggling today with maybe one certain point. I pray that you would give grace. You would open the doors of heaven, that you would allow us to see the sufficiency of your word and the power of your spirit. We could be changed forever. We would be a church that's known for being kind. That we would be a church that's characterized by tenderheartedness. That we would be a church that longs to forgive. And that that would spread throughout our community, out the, throughout the world, God. That we would exemplify the beauty of Christ. Be magnified in our hearts, in our lives. As we sing this last song, stir us up to remember the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.